Before I begin today, uh, I need to make a couple of announcements coming from the board here at Clackamas Bible Church. The first one is that we are pleased and very excited to announce that we're officially bringing on Phil Rankin as Family Ministries Pastor. Yes. Um, he will be, he needs to take a few weeks to kind of finish business at his, pro, at his current occupation, and then he'll be joining us probably first of March. Um, he'll have an office here. He'll be just part of our staff, and we will be blessed to have him on staff with us, and I'm grateful for that, excited about that. And secondly, I'm also excited to put forth an individual as a prospective elder here at Clackamas Bible Church. And this person, Phil is not here, by the way. He is sick today. Many of you know him. If you don't, we'll be introducing him as time goes on. But this person is here today. Ron Turntine, if you just want to raise your hand. This is Ron. So we're proposing and putting forth Ron Turrentine as a future prospective elder here at Clackamas Bible Church. And Ron, he's been a teacher on Wednesday nights and you've enjoyed his teaching and he's just been a part of us. And uh, Ron, we're excited to have you come, but we're offering 60-day period of feedback from you. So contact any of the board members, including myself, um, on feedback regarding Ron Turrentine. So, the gospel in a pluralistic society, there's a big word for you today. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 14, verses six through 23, if you wanna turn there. I want to start out by reading verses 6 and 7, and if you want to put up, well, let's start with this, and then the map will be after this. It says, they found out about it. The, that means the plot. In the verses before that, he had been preaching at Iconium. He was in the synagogue. The Jews had begun to stir up opposition. There was a plot underway to, to kill them, so they found out about it. And here's what it says. They found out about it and they fled to Lyconium, cities of Lystra and Derb, and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Now, if you want to shoot that map up there, last week I shot a map up there and I couldn't even see it. So I'm like, okay. So I found one that we can actually see. They had been on the island of Cyprus uh, where the big red arrow goes there first and they had been sharing the gospel. They had been in the synagogues talking about Jesus Christ, the, new, the Messiah, how he had come. Now they headed north into the mainland of what is now Turkey, present-day Turkey, and they're going to be ministering there. And they had been in Perga, Pisidian Antioch, and Iconium. Today we're going to be in Lystra, if you can see that up there where the arrow. So that gives you kind of a, a visual of geographically where they are and where they've been traveling but you remember last week I talked about the continental divide between when they first started to go on this first missionary journey, the difference is Paul's gonna be the main character in the book of Acts now instead of Peter. And instead of the Jews being the main audience where the gospel is going to, the continental divide now is it's the Gentiles. They're the ones that are gonna be the main focus of the book of Acts all the way to the end, chapter 28. But there's a, today's passage, we see another continental divide. And the divide is this. Up until this passage, they've been starting out in the synagogues and preaching about to the Jews and to God-fearing Gentiles and presenting it to people who understood truth, 
who understood Scripture, who understood one God, who understood that there was a God who sought people. But from this point, and really moving forward in, in the book of Acts, he's, there is no synagogue in Lystra as he comes here. There is no understanding that there is one God. There is no understanding of Scripture. In fact, the people that he's going to be sharing the gospel with today in this city are people that worshipped many gods. They were polytheistics. They didn't believe in a central truth. They just felt like you just reach out there and take whatever works for you. And they were pagan. They didn't really have a religion. They were just people trying to live life and trying to figure things out apart from God and apart from any kind of a religion. So I find it interesting that is the culture and that is the society that we find ourselves in here in Clackamas, Oregon today. We live in a culture that says pluralism. You're tol- we are to be tolerant, we are to accept everything because there really is no truth. Your religion is your religion, my religion is my religion. If you have no religion, that's fine too. And this idea that we just accept everything as equal and it's okay. That's the culture that we're in today. That's the situation here. The fact that they have no religion, this idea of just being pagan, just God, why does that even matter? That's where we're at today. So the question is, how do you bring the gospel to that? How does... Paul bring the gospel now to this kind of a culture, a very different one than what he's been bringing it to up to this point. So it's a story, and I th- hopefully today there'll be some things that are helpful to us in ministering to people that we are living next to, next door to. We work with these people. It's just who we are. It's where we are today. So what do you need to bring the gospel? In your note taker, I kind of listed out three things that kind of come out of this passage, but I think are important to consider. One is, we need to show love to the needy. We need to be compassionate people, number one, starting there. Number two, we need to identify idols. These are the main headings in your note takers. People are worshiping idols today just like they were back then. So we need to identify those idols and encourage people to follow a different master than the ones that they're following currently. And finally, we need to endure hardship. We need to understand what it means to to deal with hardship when it comes into our own life and to be a model for those that are watching our lives that we come in contact. So let's look at this a little bit in this passage. First of all, verses eight to 10. It says, in Lystra there sat a man who was lame, He had been that way from birth and had never walked. Put yourself in that situation. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. And the man jumped up and began to walk. Can you picture that? What a beautiful way to begin to bring the gospel in. Paul's there preaching, but he's going to do something out of compassion and kindness for this man. Now, this healing of this lame man is very similar to the story back in Acts chapter 3. If you remember that story, uh, Peter and John were coming to the temple 
to preach Jesus. And in the courtyard outside the temple, there was this lame man. And he was begging for food. He was begging for money. He was anything that anybody could give him. And uh, Peter and John looked at him. They said, we don't have silver and gold. We don't have. But what we do have, we want to give to you. And they spoke healing to this man. And you remember the story. He rose up leaping and praising God and followed them into the temple courts. It's just, and what I find interesting, it's the same story here in chapter 14. I think what Luke is doing is saying, just like Peter healed a lame man, here's Paul. He's kind of bringing the story and saying, it was Peter, now it's Paul. But this, it's the same thing. It's the same miracle. The commonality, both men were born lame. In both stories, the healers looked at them. And there was something in their eyes that said there's faith there. We don't know how. Paul knew that, but he did through the Holy Spirit. Then they were commended for their faith. They jumped up and they leaped and they praised God. And in both cases, and we're going to see this today, the preachers had to divert the attention from themselves as the healers to God who had done the healing. So that's going to come into play in this passage. Now, Miracles. Why did the apostles do these miracles? Not necessarily to prove God's existence, although it does. It proves that God is in this, but more to authenticate the messenger. John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, curious. He sought out Jesus. And here's what he says to Jesus in John 3, verse 2. He said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. Why did he know that? For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. These miracles that Jesus had been doing that Nicodemus had witnessed, he says they're signs that God's with you. They authenticated his message that he was a messenger from God and that he was speaking for God. And that's what's going on here. Paul and Barnabas did not go into these cities to do miracles. They were not just itinerant miracle workers, okay? They went into these cities to preach the gospel. And if a situation arose where someone needed to be healed, it happened by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that was not their purpose necessarily for being there. They were speaking the gospel, but they were also acting it out in deed. Word and deed together is a wonderful combination. Acts chapter 8, verse 6. This is the situation with Philip and the Samaritan people when he brought the gospel to them. Here's what it says in Acts 8, verse 6. It says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. They saw what he did. They saw the compassion. So they listened to what he had to say. I think sometimes we want people to listen to what we have to say when we're doing evangelism. But maybe what we've done has pushed them away. Or maybe another way to look at it is what we do provides a platform or an opportunity for people then to respond to what we have to say. And sometimes we get it backwards a little bit. It's, you've heard this probably said, but this idea that it's, people don't know how much, people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. Have you heard that before? But it's that idea. Do you love people? Do you show that? Do you live it out? 
Christ came and showed his love by laying his life out for you and me. We show love for people by laying our lives out for them. We flesh out the gospel. We live out the gospel. There's proclamational, that's a part of it. We tell the story, but there's also incarnational. We live it. We live what we preach. We live love, we live sacrifice, we live care for people. And when the two come together, it's powerful. And I would say this, in this culture, pluralistic culture that we're in, if we don't care about people, trust me, they're not gonna listen to what we have to say. That is how we gain that audience with them. We show that we care. That's what they did in this culture. They stepped in and they healed this man. I love in this story the gospel. I want you to see, and again, whenever we see the gospel, it's this beautiful story. In the healing of this lame man, there's the inability to take one step towards God. He's lame from birth. That's you and me. We were sinful from the day we were born. We were born into this brokenness. But yet God reaches out. It's like he looks at us. So just like Paul looked at him, and saw in his heart, that's what God does with us. It's God is the one that reaches out to us, not the other way around. We realize our helplessness, we accept the offer. That's all we do, that's our part, right? That's what this, that's all this lame man could do, is say help, please, and he reached out and he received that. We rise up out of our lameness and our sinfulness and we walk in the way of the Lord and we glorify him. That's the gospel, isn't it? Where we were, by the power of God and faith, trusting him, then we walk a life glorifying him. We're healed. It's beautiful. So they have their attention. They've done something compassionate. They have people's attention. So what happens? Look at verses 11 to 18. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think they missed the message here a little bit. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Wow, what is going on here? But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes. They rushed out in the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. Please stop. But here's what they said. But we bring you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in the season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Okay, so they definitely got the crowd's attention, but the crowds misplaced their worship the crowds totally read it wrong and they started to feel like these two were gods who had come down to earth to visit them. Now, when we read this, we're like, 
what is going, that's just weird. What is going on in this account? Well, there's a local legend, and I think this is helpful, and some of the commentaries brought this out. In their history, it makes sense. So let me just read this account to you. It says, the crowd's superstitious and even fanatical behavior is hard to comprehend, but some local background throws a light on it. About 50 years previously, the Latin poet Ovid had narrated in his Metamorphoses an ancient local legend. Okay, so 50 years prior, there's a legend around. The supreme god, Zeus, and his son, Hermes, that they referred to, once visited the hill country of Phrygia, which was in the area right around where we're at, disguised as mortal men. In their incognito, they sought hospitality, but were rebutted a thousand times. At last, however, they were offered lodging in a tiny cottage thatched with straw and reeds from the marsh. Here lived an elderly peasant couple called Philemon and Baucus, who entertained them out of their poverty. Later, the gods rewarded them, but destroyed by flood the homes which would not take them in. You see what's going on here? In, it is reasonable to suppose both that the Lystrian people knew this story about their neighborhood and that if the gods were to revisit their district, they were anxious not to suffer the same fate as the inhospitable Phrygians had 50 years earlier. Apart from the literary evidence in Ovid, two inscriptions and a stone altar have been discovered near Lystra, which indicate that Zeus and Hermes were worshipped together as local patron deities. What was going on? Well, there was this legend that 50 years prior this had happened, that the gods had come in human form, visited the people, and had been rejected by the people except for this one peasant couple. So in their minds, they're thinking, okay, we don't want to miss it this time. We recognize this. It was in their thinking. We don't want this to happen again. We're not going to let this happen again. We're going to offer sacrifices to these two. We're going to make sure they feel that we're welcoming them in. We don't want to be killed by the gods in all essence. So that's what's going on in their minds. That explains a little bit of you know, what's going on here. So they reach out. They show hospitality. Now, they're speaking in a tongue that Paul and Barnabas wouldn't know. So they're just kind of watching things happen, and then they come to this realization of what is going on. That's why they, they were kind of, at first, they were just kind of like, this is interesting. All of a sudden, it dawned on them what is going on. And that's where they start to tear their clothes. Say, stop. In their culture, tearing your clothes, you know, it was a sign of, this is, this is blasphemy. That's what the Jewish people did. When people were speaking against God, they would tear their clothes as a sign. that You're speaking blasphemy here. Please, please stop. So, but what I find interesting in the irony of all this is their idea that the gods had come down in human form was actually true in Jesus Christ. God had actually come down in human form. And what's interesting and ironical about the whole thing is so many people had missed it. So many people had put him off. They had taken him, they had killed him, put him on a cross and rejected him the first time. So what an opportunity that Paul and Barnabas would have later on to introduce this idea that 
That didn't happen, but this did. God did come down in human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, but you rejected him. But there's an opportunity now to receive him. And that's where they could have tied in the gospel beautifully. So verse 15, they say, okay, we're not that, but we do have some good news. And let, me, let us share it with you. And here's, here's what they say in verse 15 about good news. You need to do this. You need to turn from worthless things to the living God. There's a verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And Paul is writing to the Thessalonians people here, and it says, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. One way to describe someone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is this way. They turn from idols, worthless things, to serve the living and true God. That's a conversion, isn't it? That is the story. And that is what Paul wants them to consider doing here. You need to turn from these worthless, empty, deceptive things that promise fulfillment in life but do not bring it. This is something we can offer people in the good news. You need to turn from whatever it is in your life that you're trusting in apart from God that you think will bring you fulfillment, success, meaning, purpose, will ultimately line you up with God. You need to turn from the worthless things, turn to the living God, the living Christ. That's the good news of the gospel to that culture in that time, to those people. That's what they needed to hear. You need to forsake these idols and turn to the living God. They're not gonna bring you hope or meaning or anything. Now, false God, true God. The true God, those false gods are dead. Let me introduce you to a living God. That's what Paul and Barnabas are saying here. Those false gods are empty, but let me introduce you to a God that satisfies your desires and your needs in your life fully and what you really need. The true God, in verses 15 to 17, he lays out some important things about this God. Number one, he's living. He's not a stone or a rock or something you've made up with your imagination. He is alive and you can have a relationship with him. He is the creator. He, he isn't rock or stone. He created rock and stone. He is the creator of all things. He is engaged. It talks about how in time past, God dealt with the nations, but he always left a witness. That witness was his creation. Everyone could always look outside and see God's handiwork, God's design, things about God in what he created. That has always been true. He's, this is a God that is engaged. He's not just disconnected somewhere up there but he's involved in what's going on down here on earth. And he's kind. And he speaks of common grace. This God gives you that food, the rain that comes to bring you the harvest. He gives you joy in your life. Praise him. It's not 
these inanimate beings that you're seeking right now, but it's the living creator God who has given that to everybody. That's just common grace. Whether you believe in him or not, that's God's gift to you. Just know that. But he appeals to the natural revelation of creation. Romans 1, verse 20, Paul speaks about this and how important this is to people that don't come from a culture that understands who God is or understands Scripture. All they have is their own thinking. So Romans 1, verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. He's there. He's revealed himself. People can reach out for him just simply on the basis of this, what is created. They're gonna need more. But this is the starting point for all people. And what Paul is saying is that you're worshiping gods and you're seeking help from them and you're, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. I find it interesting, Paul is not asking the people from Lystra to give up their sin and receive forgiveness. That's gonna come later. At this point, what he's asking them to give up is their false gods, things that they're putting their hope and trust in, and to turn to the true God, to follow a different master in their life than the one they're currently following. In today's culture, here's the reality. It's the starting point that I think sometimes we struggle with. In today's culture, to convince people that they are sinful can often fall on deaf ears. Have you tried that? A lot of times in this culture, you will say things like that and people will look at you like you've just fell off the turnip truck or something. There's no understanding even of what that word means. And here's, and here's what they'll say. Well, that might be true for you, but it's not for me. So, you know. You're saying that, that's your thing, but I'm over here and this is my thing. This is true for me, that's true for you. And they deny the the existence of any kind of truth. And so there's the struggle in our culture. So how do you bring God into that? Well, maybe a better starting point, and I think what Paul is bringing up here is, okay, let's put that aside for a second. Let's talk about what are you relying on to make things work for you in your life. What are you relying on to be right with God ultimately? And most likely it'll be something like business, my work, my family, finances, um, you name it. There's all kinds of things that people, you know, man, it's their master of their life and it's what they're putting all their trust in. And what we need to do is maybe step into our life and go, I want to offer you a better option. I want to offer you the master of this world, and his name is Jesus Christ. Paul's sermon, by the way, this isn't the full sermon. This isn't the usual sermon that we see you know, earlier in the book. And what happens is he gets cut off. First of all, it's, it's kind of this extemporaneous sermon. The people start worshiping him, and he has to go, wait, hold it, time it, you know. And he just kind of st- 
begins this sermon, but secondly, the sermon is cut short because here comes the persecutors to take his life, and so he has to kind of cut things short a little bit in the middle of his sermon because he was going there. He was going to the reality of who Jesus is. He always does. The fact that Jesus came back to life from the dead, the fact that we can have forgiveness of sin through his sacrifice. He was going there, but he's cut short in this one. So the gospel never changes. The message is the same. It's based upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and me. That is the message of the gospel. But the way that we present the gospel and the starting point to begin to talk about the gospel in people's lives is a more flexible thing. The method can change, but not the message. Does that make sense? The way that I present the gospel to someone who has no concept of God will be different than uh, a Mormon who comes to my door and wants to give me literature, right? It's a whole different talk. It's gonna go ultimately to the message of the real gospel, but I'm gonna start things off a little different with each, and I need to, to get their attention. So it's, we're talking about the starting point, the way that we present, and I think part of that is just trusting the Holy Spirit to say, where do I go here? Now I have the gospel down, I know what the gospel is, but how do I get from here to there with this person right here? And it might involve, in fact it will involve listening. It will involve patience. It will involve kindness, maybe. Maybe building up some rapport with that person before I get to the gospel part of it, the message of the gospel. So be thinking about that. Not everyone is the same. Not, we can't just put it in a nice little package and go, this is the way it works all the time for everybody. There has to be some flexibility and openness to the Holy Spirit. How do I do this? How do I reach that person? Help me. I need some instruction here. So, love the needy, identify the idols. But verses 19 to 23 talk about hardship, and this is one maybe we'd just prefer to leave off quite honestly, but I think it's an important piece. So let's read what happens. So he's in the middle of the sermon. He doesn't finish it. He gets cut off. Here's what happened, verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. Wow. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. It's interesting, these people in Iconium and in Antioch had traveled over 100 miles <laughs> to make Paul's life miserable. And think about, these were, this was a very mountainous region, so they wanted to do this. They felt very strongly about this. But I find it interesting that that's exactly what Paul had done. Saul of Tarsus, 
had traveled from Jerusalem up to Damascus, about the same distance, to persecute and to destroy and to eliminate the gospel. So if anybody could understand this kind of mentality from Jewish people, it would be Paul. He would get it. And he'd go, I understand why they're doing what they're doing, but I want to still want to bring the gospel into their life. Now, I find it interesting. This is a very fickle crowd. First of all, they want to worship them as gods, plural. Next minute, they want to kill them. Within, I mean, literally, probably within a few hours, they had totally swapped, and they had totally gone the other way on this one. Does that sound like people? Oh, I love you. No, next minute, I want to kill that person. You know, that's just who people are. Look at Jesus. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Friday, right? Guess what? A few hours later, what were they saying? Crucify him. Same crowd, probably most of them, right? But they had been won over, and that's what happened here. The Jews persuaded them that this was wrong, that whatever they were talking about was not worth listening to. They needed to be eliminated. So the persecution here, they take them, they drag them outside, and they stone them, thinking they were dead, verse 19. I think of the Princess Bride and Miracle Max, right, Leslie? He's only mostly dead. So he gets up, probably knocked unconscious. Definitely, Paul says in later epistles, he says, I bear the scars of Jesus, literally, from being stoned. Here's one example of having rocks thrown at me. My head still hurts. I have the scars of what it means to follow Jesus and the persecution that happens. But he was not fully dead because he gets up and they go back into the city. Think about that for a second. Okay, how much courage and strength would it take to do that for a time? Now, some people think that this, it was in this event here that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12 where he speaks of this vision that he has. He speaks of this man going up to the third heaven, the highest heaven with God and having visions of things that were unspeakable and having these things. And some Bible scholars say this is maybe where all, all this was happening. Maybe he'd been knocked a little, you know, by the rocks and he was, you know, God was allowing him to see. I don't know. Speculation at best, but it's interesting. So what role does hardship play in our life? We need to have a good theology. We need to understand who God is. That theology is the study of God. But I think we also need to have a good theodicy. Theodicy is the study of how does God relate to suffering? How can a good and caring and loving God allow some of the things that we see in our world? And I, as believers, we need to have a good theodicy, an explanation, an understanding of who God is in the face of persecution and suffering, not only in our lives, but in the lives of people around us. And I think that's an important piece that sometimes is missing in our discipleship, in our training. Theodicy, where is God in this? What is the purpose of hardship in our life? Well, I see a couple. Number one, through hardship we grow, personal growth. We are conformed to the image of Christ through hardship often. 
Suffering can serve to drive us toward God, crying out to him. And I saw this quote, Donna actually quoted it to me, then she put it on Facebook, and I said, Donna, where'd you get that from? It's, it's beautiful, and so here it is. It's from Joni Erickson Tata. You probably know her story, where she had a diving accident, became a quadriplegic. But here's what she says. She says, my trials are sheepdogs that constantly snap at my heels, driving me down the road to Calvary, where I die to the sins Jesus died for. Suffering, hardship in my life are like nipping at my heels, driving me to him. Man, I hate him. Sometimes I'll kick at him. You know, I don't like that. It feels terrible, but they're driving me to him, closer to him, to rely on him more. So they, I can grow in hardship, but I want you to think about it this way also. I believe we can be a testimony to those who do not believe in our hardship. You know, it's one thing to be a Christian when all things are going great. My family's doing what I want them to do. My job is great. I've got all kinds of excess money. Um, you know, things are just rolling. So I'll talk about Jesus, and people go, okay, you know, I understand, you know and he's blessed you, and that's all fine and dandy. But what about when things, when the wheels come off? I've got cancer. I've lost somebody pretty close to me. My job is gone. You name it. All of a sudden, I've got these hardships in my life. People are still gonna watch you, and they're gonna go, okay, how is this person handling that? And I believe that's really where they see the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. You know, all of us can live life when things are great, right? We don't need God in those situations. We do, but we can survive, you know. But the reality is when we go through hardships, we can be an example to people when they see us suffer, but yet give honor and praise to him and trust him and give credit to him and speak to them about it. What a beautiful way to be a testimony. Paul used the stoning that happened. It was terrible. I mean, he was close to death. But I know he used that and many other persecutions in his life to speak about someone who was greater than any persecution that he was going through. C.S. Lewis uh, had this. I came across this. As someone asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? Man, if you love God... Why does he allow suffering in your life? Why not? C.S. Lewis replied, they're the only ones who can take it. <laughs> Truth? Because we know God. Yeah. We trust in someone that's way beyond any suffering that comes into our life. We, we can take it by his grace, by his power. But it can be a powerful testimony, can't it? So we can grow in suffering we can be a testimony. But look at verse 21, 22. This is the reality of hardship. Actually, verse 22 speaks to this. It says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must. It's not an optional thing. It's a must. It's a reality in our lives. 2 Timothy 3, 11 and 12, Paul says the same thing. And he's saying this to Timothy. He says, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Hmm. 
right here. All those things that happened, I got chased out of the first two and I got stoned in the third. All those things that were going on back there, those persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, period. It's not a maybe, it's not an if, it's a will. Expect it, welcome it, grow from it, use it as a testimony in your life. Those are the things that Paul's telling them. But what I love about this passage as it ends in verse 22 and 23, Paul and Barnabas, it says, they spent time with the new disciples, strengthening, encouraging, and warning them about hardships that are gonna come into their life. Strengthening them, Man, they're new converts. They need to be strengthened in their new faith. They need to be encouraged in the faith, and they need to be warned. <laughs> there's gonna be some tough times ahead. It's not always gonna be easy. They did those three things, but there's a threefold provision for the churches here. Number one, there's apostolic instruction. Paul says you need to be strengthened in the faith you need to remain true to the faith. And I want you to see in this passage, Paul and Barnabas didn't just make converts, they made disciples. It wasn't just, hey, you raised your hand, good enough, on to the next city. Not just a convert, but we're gonna follow up. We're gonna make sure that growth happens. There's a big difference there, okay? But they didn't stop there. They didn't just make disciples, they planted and established churches. Do you see the difference? So it's not just right into town, share the gospel right out of town, people you know, filled out a card and they received Jesus, I'm on to the next thing. They stuck around, they established them in their faith, and they established churches where they could be a part of and grow. There's a big difference there of what evangelism looked like then and maybe sometimes now a little bit. They wanted to make sure these new babies could grow and flourish. But threefold provision, number one, apostolic instruction. He talks about the word, this, the faith. This is a recognizable body of doctrine, these central beliefs that were taught by the apostles. Now they had the Old Testament, that was already there and it was, they had been taught that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Old Testament talked about. So they were, they were taught to read the Old Testament in a different light, with different goggles on. But the New Testament was in process, right? Paul has not written yet, you know, one-fourth of the New Testament that he will. Luke, who will come with Paul on the second journey, hasn't written his books yet, so we don't have the New Testament yet. But they had... With them, they had the faith. What does that mean? It's this body of teaching that the apostles had taught that people were aware of that was collected together that they would have had. And it would have been available. If you want to shoot up the PowerPoint, this came later. Oh, wow, that's small. Okay. <laughs> this is the Apostles' Creed. This came in about the third century or so. This came later on, but this was based upon the teaching that was already established prior to that. It would have spoke of things like there's one God who is the living creator of all things. There's Jesus Christ, his son, who died, who was resurrected, who has ascended, 
and who is returning. That's all part of the Apostles' Creed. There's the reality of sin, the need to trust Christ for forgiveness and atonement of that sin. There's the presence of the Holy Spirit that indwells, seals, and empowers us. That was all part of the Apostles' Creed and the teaching here. There's the unity and community of the body of Christ, his church. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, I don't know if you can see it there, but it says Catholic Church. You have to understand that word Catholic means the one universal, small c, not the capital C, religion that is around today. Catholic means there is one universal church, and that is the one where the Spirit indwells us and that we abide by the teaching that Jesus Christ passed on to his apostles, okay? So that's what that word Catholic means. Some people are kind of thrown off by that. One, there is one universal church, and there are high standards that we are to follow based upon our Savior. He's told us the law of love, the law of purity, the law of caring for your neighbor, the law of all these things that would have been taught. So there's this beautiful instruction that they had and they were encouraged and they were strengthened in that. We need that today. Verse 23, there's two more things. There's pastoral oversight. It says, they went back into the cities and established elders. This was important to Paul and Barnabas. Keep in mind they had just been stoned. It would have been easy to say, okay, we're pretty much done at this point. Let's go back to the other Antioch in Syria where we started. Let's just go back and call it good. What did they do? No, they went back and retraced where they had been and where they had gone through all the persecution because they needed to do these things to make sure these things were in place for the believers. Establishing elders. This is the first mention of that word in regards to the church in the book of Acts. We're gonna see it nine times in the book of Acts, eight more after this one. The word elders is presbyteros, Presbyterian churches. That's where that word comes from. It speaks of seniority or maturity of an individual to lead. So that's what elders is speaking of. Now, in the Jewish faith up through this point, in the Sanhedrin, there were elders. They were there, they were the leaders of the Sanhedrin. So the Christian church adopted that idea and brought it into the church. There are gonna be elders who are gonna be leaders of this church now. So we have elders, and then in scripture you see different terms for that word. Overseers and bishops is also used in different places. The word there is episkopos, episcopal. Those are, over, that's what that word literally means is overseer. What do elders do? They're mature in their faith, but ultimately what is their role? And it speaks of overseeing. Elders oversee doctrine. Elders oversee the teaching of the church. Elders oversee the ministries of the church. They are the leaders of the church. And then in our church we have deacons. What are deacons? They serve. They come alongside and they help. They cover things like making sure that this building doesn't fall down on us on any given Sunday, taking care of things that just need to be taken care of, as well as the oversight of care ministry here in our church, our benevolent fund. This is a huge ministry our deacons do, and they serve you, our body, by making sure people are cared for. So building and people 
with elders, it's ministry and teaching. Those are the, the distinction maybe between the two. These men are local and they're plural. They're local. They're from within the congregation. They didn't do a nationwide search. They didn't go on a, you know, faithful men who had been serving that were solid in their faith right there. They were local and they were plural. It's not one guy leading the church, okay? Just like here at CBC, it's not me, one guy leading this church. Thank God. Thanks you, Lord, for that fact. I mean, the reality is there's a plurality of us. We have, at the current time, four. We're bringing on, by God's grace, a fifth elder. Um, we've always had somewhere between four to six in that role as elder here. Ron is a local guy. He's faithfully served and taught here in our church. But we need a plurality, too, because I need accountability as the pastor of this church. I need a group around me that keep me in line and keep me centered on the word of God and that bring a richness of gifting beyond what I have. I'm very limited, but with us as a plurality, we cover more bases that way by God's grace and his gifting. They were chosen, they were elected, they were appointed, there's different words, but this idea, like what we're doing with Ron, appointing him and then hearing from you to receive that approval as a congregation is part of that process of bringing on elders. They put leaders in place so the church didn't just disappear and waste away into nothing. The third provision in verse 23, they committed, Paul and Barnabas committed them to the Lord to whom they had put their trust. At the end of the day, there's the teaching that we're gonna teach you and we're gonna leave you with this teaching. We're gonna put leaders in place, but at the end of the day, we're gonna trust you to him, to your Lord. And as your pastor, I wanna bring the word. I wanna work with gifted, godly leaders, but at the end of the day, guess what? We're gonna trust you to him that you put your trust in. That is beautiful, and I think we all need to be reminded of that. Um, and we want to do that. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble, the Psalms says. Isn't that a beautiful verse? He's always there. We can always put our trust and hope in him. And that's the third and final provision. We have God's word, we have God, godly leaders, and we have God himself. Isn't that beautiful? What more do you need in persecution? That's pretty good. So, just a final conclusion, how do you bring the gospel into people's lives that have no sense of who God is and really don't care? No sense of any kind of truth? Well, show some compassion. Show that you care. Listen. Step one, gain an audience into their life, step one. Step two, maybe talk about what are they trusting in and bring Christ into that. Everybody's master, everybody has a master in their life. Everybody's trusting something. So why not trust him? Turn from worthless things to the living God. There it is. And finally, finally, just use hardship in their lives and yours as a testimony. Amen?